All right, we're continuing our study tonight uh, on praying with Paul. And we come to chapter 7, which is the convicting chapter. And that is the chapter on excuses why we don't pray. Uh, I think, uh, I don't know about you, but for me, most of the book has been convicting so far. Uh, so let's just uh, say another word of prayer before we get started on this. Lord, we thank you again that we can pray. We thank you that we have uh, your word and we have really good books that explain your word to us. And as we look at one of those tonight, pray that you convict us where necessary and encourage us in our prayer life. And bless us in Christ's name. Amen. So there's several excuses, several common excuses. I'm sure you'll think of more uh, as you meditate on this later. But the first excuse I'm going to talk about is uh, just the most overused and lamest excuse that we all use all the time is that is, I'm too busy to pray, right? It, it, just thinking about that excuse makes me think of Martin Luther, who he said, you know, he's, he's got like all these obligations, you know, and he lists all these things that he has to do, and he's like, so I really need to spend four hours of prayer this morning because I'm so busy. So that's convicting all on its own. But think about that. In Martin Luther's mind, he was so busy that he had to spend a lot of time in prayer before he went about his busy day. That's basically the opposite of how we treat prayer most of the time, I think. We live in a, in a busy age, right? We, we're always on the go. We're always doing something. We're really good at filling up our calendar with things. Everything's kind of fast-paced these days. You know, fast food is, it's everywhere, it's really convenient, and that's one of the things that, uh, you know, these fast food restaurants push for is how fast can we get someone through the line, right? Because we don't like to wait for anything anymore. And when we stop, and we actually have a minute to think and breathe, we don't stop to think and breathe. We don't stop to contemplate, we don't stop to think. We just stop to absorb whatever happens to be in front of us at the time, whether that's just turning on the TV or on a computer screen or a phone or a tablet or whatever it is. And so the result of this is that we seldom actually sit down to think and reflect and meditate and pray. We don't make time for prayer. That's really what it comes down to. That's the real problem. That is just kind of a funny story that someone told years ago about uh, him and his wife. They're driving in their car, going somewhere, and they see someone on the side of the road, broken down. So they stop, and they ask the guy what's wrong, and he's just frazzled. You know, he's trying to get somewhere. He's got like a job interview, and he ran out of gas. So they had some gas with them, so they gave him a gallon of gas, and then they told him that there's a service station just right down the road, this is enough to get you there. And they send one away and he you know, thanks them profusely. And then they continue on their journey after. And about 10, 12 miles down the road, they see the same guy on the side of the road broken down again. So they stop and they ask him like, well, what's, what's going on at this point? He's just a, a wreck. And he said he thought he could make it there on the one gallon of gas. So he didn't stop at the service station. He just, and that's exactly what we do every day when we don't pray, isn't it? it it's, it's surprising that someone would actually be that dumb, you know, but that's exactly what we do when we neglect prayer. 
sadly, most of us probably operate exactly like that, don't we? If we're honest with ourselves. We tell ourselves that we're really busy, that everything we're doing is really important, and while we know that prayer is really important, well, these other things are really, really important, and we don't really have time to stop and pray about this stuff. And so as a result, we don't get around to it. Well, let's think about this, and specifically, what does the Bible actually say about this excuse? So think about the story of Mary and Martha in Luke 10. Martha is, so Jesus arrives, and Martha's really busy. There's all these guests there. There's Jesus, the Son of God, is there. Right? Pretty important that everything goes well when you've got the Son of God in your house. So Martha's really busy making preparations for the guests and everything, and her sister Mary is just sitting at Jesus' feet, just being with him, not worrying about whatever is going on, all, all the food that has to be made and stuff. And so Martha's really agitated to the point where she finally goes up to Jesus and says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And what does Jesus say? He says, you're absolutely right, Martha. <laughs> Mary, what are you doing? No, that's, that's not what he says. And, and what he says is not really what we want to hear at all. It says in uh, verse 41, it says, And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. That's a pretty convicting lesson right there for us. Because we are probably too busy. If, we're too, if we really are too busy to pray, then that means something else needs to be cut out. We need to make prayer a priority. The second excuse that we often make uh, is, I just feel too spiritually dry to, to pray. I just feel dull. Uh, I don't feel like praying. That kind of excuse. And we've all been there before, right? Sometimes we're just tired. We just don't feel like we have the energy. Uh, sometimes we're sleepless. And so that compounds that. Sometimes maybe it's because someone's hurt us and we don't want to pray because we've been hurt by someone. Maybe we are in a very pessimistic state of mind at the moment. Maybe we're overstressed and we're emotionally drained. Whatever the case may be, we feel like the mountain is too high to climb. We can't make that journey to the top of the mountain to pray. And so we don't. And it sounds like a valid excuse on, on the face of it, but really there's two really horrible presuppositions at, at work behind this attitude. And the first one is the assumption that my approach to God should be tied to how I feel. So if I don't feel like praying, it's okay that I, I don't pray, because I don't feel like it. We act like that's a valid excuse. Let me ask you this. Is God impressed with us when we feel good about ourselves? Is it our feelings that matter when we approach God, or is it the mediatorial office of the Son of God and His appearing before our Father that we sang about earlier? 
Is that what matters more? What we do when we decide, well, I'm really stressed or, you know, Bob threw a shoe at me and I'm really upset about that or whatever. What we're doing when we make this excuse is we're, we're casting a slur on the name of Christ. We're saying that, you know, my personal feelings matter more than going before the Son, the, the, the Father, and praying. And we have to deal with that. We have to preach to ourselves. We have to remind ourselves that God does not hear us because we feel righteous or because we're in a good mood or because we feel lively. We have to do better than that. We can't give up on prayer because we just don't feel like it. The second presupposition behind this attitude is that our obligation to pray is somehow diminished when we don't feel up to it. That's a very self-centered attitude, and it, it assigns my mood to be the deciding factor of whether I obey God or whether I don't obey God, and whether that's okay or not. It also just completely ignores the direct command of God that we are supposed to pray faithfully, to pray without ceasing. So again, we ask the question, what does the Bible say about this? There's two parables. The first one is in Luke 18, the persistent widow. Right? There's this, this judge who's unjust. He doesn't care about anybody. And uh, in fact, in, in verse 2, it says he neither feared God nor cared what the people thought. So the widow comes to this judge to plead her case. And initially, he ignores her because he, doesn't, he just doesn't care. But she persisted. She kept going to him, she kept pleading her case. And eventually, he decided, he says, Though I do not fear God nor man, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continually coming she weary me. Now, the lesson here is not that God is an unjust judge and we need to pester him to make him do what we want, right? The, the lesson here is that we need to persist in prayer. We need to be continually praying before God. Because sometimes he wants us to grow in our faith. And that's why he doesn't immediately answer our prayer. Sometimes he wants us to learn a lesson about being patient and pursuing him constantly in prayer. So the question that Jesus is answering is not about whether or not God answers prayer. The question he's answering is, do people have faith? Do we have enough faith to persist in prayer, whether we feel like it or whether we don't feel like it? And he ends the question, or the parable, with this question. He asks exactly what I'm saying. He says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? When we make our mood the deciding factor, we're admitting that we don't have the kind of faith that Jesus was talking about in this parable. The second parable is that of the person who goes at midnight to his friend uh, to get some bread, right? So he shows up, he knocks on the door, the, he asks for bread because of some guests that are arrived, he doesn't have any bread. And uh, 
he wakes him up and initially said, the guy says, go away, I'm in, I'm in bed, my kids are in bed with me, you know, it's midnight, we're trying to sleep. And yet Jesus says, I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he's his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So again, the, the moral of this in verse 9 we see, he says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you, for everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. And the idea there is those who keep asking, those who keep knocking, those who keep seeking, those are the ones who are going to find. The ones who persist in prayer, the ones who, when they feel like not praying, go ahead and pray anyway. The ones who are stressed out and go and pray anyway. The ones who are hurting and they go and pray anyway, those are the ones that Jesus is talking about. Again, we learn in these two parables that Jesus, that, that God does not always answer our prayers right away. Sometimes he makes us wait. If God were to answer all of our prayers always, immediately, all the time, it would reduce him to a genie. He would cease to be God. He would just be a servant of whatever we want, and that's not a good thing. Any questions so far? Okay, the third excuse is I feel no need to pray. Not I don't want to pray, but I don't feel like I need to pray. Now, most of us, I think, would not make this excuse out loud. Right? We would probably not admit, I don't feel like I need to pray. But we do act like it sometimes, don't we? Sometimes the reality is we don't pray because we just feel confident in ourselves. We feel like we've got everything worked out. Everything's, everything's pretty much fine. I, I don't really need to pray. We abstractly acknowledge the need to pray, but in practice, we, only, we really just think that prayer is more important for other people. People who are weaker, people who are going through really difficult times, um, people who don't have as good of a character as I have, um, and then to add to this, we feel like, well, I'm getting along just fine without praying, so obviously I don't need to. And that just reinforces the, mis the, the, the misperception that prayer is something that we actually need to do. So that's kind of a catch-22 there. If we're so puffed up with ourselves that we feel no need to pray, God may, in his mercy, let us stumble and fall and actually teach us that, yeah, you do need to pray, and you need to trust in me. What's the worst thing that God could do to you if you're not praying or living in some kind of sin? What's the worst thing that God could do? Abandon you. Abandon you, yes. Essentially, the worst thing that God can do is nothing. Just let us keep going down that road and, and not wake us up. That's the worst thing that he can do for us. So we 
let's let's look at a, an example of this. Uh, when the consequences of when we decide that we are not going to pray, that we're not going to seek the Lord, uh, we see this in Joshua nine in the Gibeonite deception. So Joshua has led Israel into uh, the Promised Land, and they've seen God's power, both in the destruction of Jericho and at the crossing uh, at the Jordan River. And at this point in uh, Israel's history, they're seen as kind of a rising power, right? because they've defeated this great city. They're going into Israel. And so the Gibeonites approach Israel, and what they do is they put on old clothes. They've got dilapidated sandals. They bring moldy bread with them. And the idea is we're going to deceive Israel into making them believe that we're from some distant land. Right? They've traveled a long way, their bread's all moldy and everything. And so they come to them and they ask for a peace treaty. And Joshua, this is what Joshua says in uh, chapter 9, verses 14 and 15, says that the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live and the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And the consequences were not good, right? Because they were not from a distant land. And this is what we do, though, right? We see an opportunity in front of us. We see uh, maybe a job opportunity. And we take the job. We don't even pray about it, right? Or uh, we decide... We're going to move out of state. You know, I'm done with this place. I don't like the politics or whatever it may be. And we just decide we're going to do that without praying. We do exactly what Israel did. They did not seek the counsel of the Lord. It's easy for some of us, for all of us at times, we come to an important decision in our life, in business or in ministry, and we think that, well, I'm spiritually mature, I'm intelligent, I've got all the facts in front of me, I've got my life experience, this looks like a, a great idea, I'm going to go ahead and do it. And we don't, even, we don't even pray about it. Another example is out of Hezekiah. Right? He, he prayed. He prayed and he begged God for 15 more years of life, and God granted that prayer. He answered that prayer. And most of those years were good, productive years for Hezekiah. But there was one thing that he failed in. Does anybody remember what that one thing he failed at was? When the, the PhD does. The PhD candidate. <laughs> so remember, when, when the envoy, when the envoys from Babylon came, Hezekiah was very flattered by them, right? He was very proud of himself. And so he decided that he was going to show them the wealth of the nation of Babylon. So that's what he did. And what was the result of that very bad decision? Captivity, right? Babylon came. They destroyed Israel. They took in captivity. They took all their wealth. And that happened because Hezekiah did not seek the Lord in that one decision. 2 Chronicles 32-31 says this, However, regarding the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, whom they sent to him to inquire about the wonder that was done in the land, God withdrew from him in order to test him that he might know 
all that was in his heart. And what we found out is that Hezekiah was proud. When God withdrew from him, he was overly, overly confident in his own wisdom, and it cost Israel dearly. The next excuse that we use is, I am too bitter to pray. Again, I don't know that we would necessarily say this out loud, but we have that in our hearts. We all acknowledge that there's injustice in this world. If you have a beating heart, you've experienced it. And it's easy to acknowledge this fact. I don't think anybody here would argue with me that there's injustice in this world. But when that injustice is directed at us personally, when theory meets reality, it's a little bit harder to deal with, isn't it? And sometimes we find it so hard to deal with that we just stop praying. We might be tempted to revenge towards bitterness, towards malice, towards gossip. And holding those attitudes in our heart immediately, immediately affects our prayer life in negative ways. Maybe it just makes our prayers more formulaic than they should be. We're bitter, we're angry, we know we need to pray, so we go and do it, but there's no heart in it. It's cold. We just say the words so that we can do our duty and get on with it. But eventually, that bitterness takes a root in our hearts, and eventually it leads us entirely away from prayer, and we just stop praying. We might say to ourselves, well, I have suffered so much, how could I possibly pray? God doesn't care about me. We say things like, don't tell me to pray for my enemies because they're the ones who hurt me so much. How could I even bring myself to pray for the people who hurt me? If we're consumed by resentment and pettiness towards those around us, real prayer will assuredly cease to exist. Why is this? Because genuine, real prayer forces us to acknowledge and deal with our own sin. It forces us to confess our sin and to repent of it rather than cherishing it. There will be no real prayer unless that happens first. It's very hard, probably impossible, to pray with zeal and fervor and sincerity when we're harboring bitterness in our hearts toward the people around us. Matthew 6, 14 15, through 15 says this, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And in Mark 11, 25, it says, And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive your trespasses. So let me ask, what's the point of these two passages? Is it, when I forgive someone who's hurt me, I earn God's forgiveness? Is that it? Everyone shake your head no. <laughs> the point is that when we, when we actually forgive other people the things that they've done to us, it shows that we ourselves are sincere in our desire to be forgiven by God. It shows that we really are repentant and that we, we genuinely desire to be forgiven because we ourselves have gone ahead and forgiven those who hurt us. Now, we should never take the attitude that we can enjoy God's blessing without his discipline. And sometimes that means dealing 
with the bitterness and the anger and the hurt that someone else has caused us. Everyone in this room, I think, knows that they are a sinner and need forgiveness. And when we withhold forgiveness for others, it turns our prayer into nothing more than cheap talk. It's like a politician in an election year who promises everything he thinks their constituent he thinks his constituents wants to hear. And then when he gets elected, he doesn't do any of it. Or the opposite. Right? That's how we act before God when we harbor bitterness and pretend to be praying like we're sincere and genuine. Ephesians 4, 31-32 is another passage that we should think about with regard to bitterness. It says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. If God in Christ has forgiven you, it's inconceivable that we should withhold that from someone else. If a perfect and holy God can forgive you of every sin that you've, con- you've committed in your life, you can forgive your brother for the wrong that they've done to you. Uh, the next excuse that we use is, I'm too ashamed to pray. What was Adam and Eve's response to God after they sinned in the garden? What, what did they immediately do? They hid themselves, yes. And who was it that came looking for them? It was God who came looking for them, right? So they, they were ashamed. They went and hid. God came to them and sought them out. He called them and he found them. And they responded when he asked, you know, what's going on here? He said, they say, we were ashamed, and so we hid ourselves. The lesson here is that God is the one who sought them when they were ashamed. We can't hide hide ourselves when we're ashamed. We can't hide from God. And we need to remember that, number one, he's the one who sought us out to deal with our sin. And he already knows what happened anyway. Proverbs 5.21 says, For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all their paths. Hebrews 4.13 says, And there is no creature hidden from the sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. If we feel too ashamed to pray, then we need to pray. Don't let shame keep you from prayer. Rather, let it drive you to prayer so that God, who already knows, can forgive you and cleanse you and give you that freedom that you want and the boldness to pray again. Also remember that if shame drives you away from God and you stop praying, nothing good is going to happen after that. It's only going to get worse. The worst thing you can do is keep hiding from God. So if you're ashamed, the best thing, the absolute best thing that you can do is get on your knees and pray. If you continue to hide you're probably going to add prayerlessness to the list of things that you're ashamed of, right? So it's better to just go to the Lord and deal with it. 
and don't let your heart be hardened by that sin. Uh, the last excuse we'll cover tonight is another one that we're not going to admit, and yet we might practice, and that is, I'm content with mediocrity. Okay? Uh, yeah, I don't think anybody would really admit that, but it is a real problem. Really, sometimes we're just content with an outward show of religion. We're content to show up on Sunday. Uh, we're, we're perfectly fine if we appear to be good people. We don't really care if our heart is changed, and so we neglect the things that change the heart, including prayer. We might be really concerned with the preacher's sermon. We might be really concerned that everything he says is exactly theologically correct. We might fret over appearing morally upright to everybody. Uh, we, might, we might even pray on Wednesday nights and try to make it sound like we're really holy. But at the end of the day, we don't engage in private prayer, we don't read our Bibles, we don't really care about those things. Because all we care about is outward appearance. We're content with being mediocre. We're content with being Sunday Christians. James 4, 1 through 2 says this, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Do you lust and do not have? you murder and covet and cannot obtain? you fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask? So James is addressing, addressing Christians here, right? And he's saying they're fighting amongst themselves, they're frustrated with each other, they're angry, and they don't get the things that they want because they don't even ask for it. They don't pray, and so they don't have. And when they do pray, they're just praying for selfish desires. Verse 3 says, you, do not ask, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. From God's perspective, these people were adulterers. Verse 4, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, thankfully, we have a cure in verses 7 through 10. James says, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. The cure for being a Sunday Christian is repentance, seeking the Lord and asking Him. Even if you don't feel like you're being sincere, the best thing you can do is just go and ask the Lord to change your heart. And don't stop until He does. Sadly, all of these excuses I think all of us make from time to time, to a greater or lesser degree. And so we need to think about these things and more importantly, do something about these things and actually commit ourselves to praying. So I'll leave you with a few questions you can reflect on. I'm sorry, I've gone five minutes over. <laughs> I didn't even realize. Uh, are there other excuses that you make to not pray? And I'll give you a hint. Every excuse is not valid. Okay. <laughs> Do you ever appeal to any of these excuses to justify your prayerlessness? Again, not valid. And lastly, remember and think about this. 
does God accept us because of what we do or how we feel, or does he accept us because of his son? It's always because of his son. There's never an excuse not to pray. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, your goodness to us and your mercy to us. We thank you that we can indeed, because of Jesus Christ, come to you in prayer. We pray that you would convict us in the areas where we fail, that you would encourage us and help us repent uh, of our prayerlessness. And uh, we ask you to bless us as we go this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.